0: This will be the last Axe Files for the year. We're taking a little break for the holidays. I hope yours are great. And we'll be back on January 7th for another year of The Axe Files.
1: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
0: If you've been following the saga of the Russian probe and Donald Trump, then you almost certainly have seen Eric Swalwell, the congressman from California, member of the House Intelligence Committee, often on television, uh, talking about the probe. But he's talking about a lot of other stuff uh, as well as he travels around the country, chairman of this future forum in the House, trying to talk to younger Americans about the future and the direction uh, of the country. And now a potential candidate for president of the United States at 38 years old. He came by Chicago this week en route to Iowa, and we sat down to talk about breaking news, of course, involving the president, but also about his own journey and this ambitious new project on which he appears about to embark. Eric Swalwell, welcome. Great, Thank you. Great to see you here in Chicago. Um which I know is on the way to Iowa, which is where you're heading, which we will talk about uh, in the the course of this conversation. But normally i I start off um, with your story. I want to get to that really quickly. But there are a couple of breaking news stories right now, as there always seem to be with uh, this president. Uh, One was that apparently he's standing down on this threat to shut down the government. For the wall, were you? Are you surprised by that?
1: No, not surprised. We've seen him capitulate uh, before. I mean, he he tucks, ta- talks tough. You know, has a a good game, but when it comes time, you know, to show his hand, uh, he usually, uh, you know, is holding, you know, a, a two and a seven, uh, and doesn't really have much uh, to play. So I'm I'm not surprised, and I think uh, he's he has the house and the Senate right now, and he's folding. I I can't imagine uh, what type of. You know, bargaining position he's going to be in when we go into a Democratic majority.
0: That was an interesting scene in the Oval Office uh, last week. What was the chatter in your caucus about uh, about Nancy
1: Pelosi's role in all of that? She went in prepared, and I had met with her with our leadership team the night before, uh, and then she also later that night met with uh, Chuck Schumer to you know prepare for the meeting, and we were all in agreement that she should start, you know, the conversation telling the president, you have the White House, the Senate, and the House. You know, this is your budget. You guys should sort this out. If you can't, you should deal with us. But to really press upon them that they own the shutdown if they can't sort it out. And she went in there and and she did. She, you know, gave him that civics lesson, but also gave him, you know, a couple options to keep government open. I thought it was striking though to see like the two of, to see Schumer and Pelosi when Trump is going off, not even look at him and I thought that might have been a you know a tactic to just you know the same way I treat my 18 month old when he's just throwing stuff everywhere and wants our attention just don't give him attention. He doesn't have nuclear weapons. Right right no.
0: So uh, Trump uh, you you say she went and prepared and she did execute on the strategy that you suggest. She told him look put it on the floor pass it. Uh, Do you think that Trump goes into these meetings prepared?
1: No no I, I think he just wings it you know, he likes to believe he can trust, you know, his instincts and his gut. And he had no one in the room. Uh, and this was something that uh, Leader Pelosi uh, was really struck by uh, in conversations after. There's no one in the room who would even... Uh, you know, speak up for him or even correct him. And so he lives, you know, in in this universe of his own lies where they're not corrected. Uh, And so you can imagine how he just continues to make, you know, strategic uh, blunder after blunder. So what do you think this is going to be like for the next two years, the relationship between her uh, as Speaker and and Trump as President? Well, she's been there before, right? Uh, Obviously, somebody who I think was, uh, had a little more, uh, you know, tactics and strategy, in, in George Bush. Uh, but you know, she's been in the position before where we're in the majority, but the Republicans have the White House, and she was able, I think, to effectively start to wind down uh, the Iraq War, you know, strike deals. Uh, for, for me, there is an issue around student debt. She got the student loan forgiveness program, a, a large program that reduced the student loan debt burden uh, in a deal with uh, Bush. So I, I see her doing the same thing on infrastructure, the DREAM Act, uh, background checks and prescription drugs to at least try and pass that out of the House, build momentum in the Senate and see if he'll sign it. Because those are all issues that he's already said uh, in the past, that he would support, but Republicans have never brought forward uh, in the 115th Congress. It's interesting that you you say that
0: because you you're best known to people who yeah. know you uh, as the guy on cable TV yeah. talking about the Russia probe yeah. as a member of the House Intel Committee. And one of the yeah. things that people um, are wondering is how much of uh, the time and effort of Democrats is going to go into. Pursuing oversight yeah. investigations, and how much is going to be on these these other issues? You you're suggesting that um, there's going to be a real effort to put a program forward yeah. on these other issues.
1: Yeah. Collaborate where we can, and as I said, those are the four that we see opportunity just based on his statements. You know, in his State of the Union press conferences he's held, or if you remember, in the Roosevelt Room, he had Republicans and Democrats there. And he said, hey, you guys pass immigration, I'll take the heat, or he'll be the first president to negotiate with the NRA. So you take the heat on the shutdown, too. That's right. Uh, So again, you have to, I think, at least pass it and build momentum in the Senate and see if he Signs it because if he signs it, it's good progressive bills that we haven't been able to get Republicans to bring up. But then we also have to investigate, uh, you know, where it's necessary. It's funny you said that, yes. I, I, I know that you know, when most people you know see me now, they associate me. With being one of the, you they're know, they're not Russia inviting you on TV to talk about student loans. And I wish they were. But when I went to Congress, I ran against uh, a 40 year Democratic incumbent. Pete stark, yes. Promising to, you know, be a consensus builder. In my first four years in Congress, I got bills passed in a Republican controlled Congress, working with Republicans. I'm the son of two Republicans. I married a Hoosier from Mike Pence's hometown. I've always been comfortable doing that. But when Donald Trump got elected, Uh, This guy's a different animal, and I just, you know, I've seen my friendships uh, across the aisle uh, fray because of, you know, speaking out against the president, but my hope is that there's going to be a day after Trump. I want to, you know, have a reset and go back to working with them. I'm going to actually try in this new Congress. I hope this last election has been a wake-up call for a lot of Republicans that the voters want to see a balance of power uh, on these abuses of power, but yeah, that's not my default setting is to, you know, go at uh, Republicans the way I go at Trump. But this guy, I just think, needs to be held accountable.
0: The uh, the other breaking story was that the president ag- agreed to fold, or the I guess it would be him, to fold his charity in yeah. New York, which the attorney general has suggested was rife with illegality. Uh, what is the impact of those kinds of stories? And is there an impact? president's approval rating has been sitting there at, you know, uh, low forties, uh, forever. It's, right. it's almost as if nothing moves the needle one, uh, very far in one direction, uh, or the other. Do these stories, what are these stories? Should they mean? And
1: what yeah. do they mean? Well, I, I see storms, you know, gathering, uh, around this white house now, uh, on the investigations as they become more intense and reach a crescendo, but also, uh, The economy, sadly, is starting to dip. And this president has been, you know, one of the only presidents who has been able somehow to separate himself from the success of the economy. His poll, his approval numbers are not tracking with a very good economy, yet he's still been able to hold on, you know, as you said. So you think
0: these things are having an impact on on his political standing? Yes,
1: I don't see how he can survive and be reelected if the economy uh, is—if the economy in November— 2020 is what it is today. Uh, I think he's toast. He has, he has no chance at all uh, because even in a, a, a very good economy, he's barely you know under fifty uh, percent. I think it could get much worse for him. And the investigations have not yet reached their conclusion. Well,
0: you guys are going to have something to do with that. I mean, there's been two years of pent up energy yeah. behind oversight that hasn't that hasn't happened. One of them was in your intelligence committee where the chairman Devin Nunes shut down uh, that that probe how much work is left to yeah. be done by that committee and i don't mean to go i'll meet the press on you here because yeah. i do want to get to your story but as long as we're here we might so we we'll well fill in the gaps yeah,
1: on the russia investigation and just to give you a sense of what this uh, investigation was like you know we're sitting at a round table here or a conference table and so republicans would sit on one end democrats would sit on the other witness would sit at the end of the, the table and mostly the republicans just didn't show up that's going to be seen when these transcripts are released shortly so they had very little interest in even being in the room when they did show up they asked very little and participated maybe 10 percent of the time 90 percent of the questions were usually asked uh, by democrats but so in every case a witness was tested by democrats on their story and then we would ask to have the witnesses records whether it's cell phone records bank records travel logs be subpoenaed so we could corroborate or contradict, and the Republicans blocked every single effort. So essentially, it was a take them at their word investigation. And you wouldn't believe the number of times that Republicans sitting right across from me would look at the witness and say, Hey, if, if you don't want to answer these questions, this is a voluntary interview. You can walk away right now. Uh, and Jared Kushner actually did that once he was told about half a dozen times that he didn't have to answer questions. He got up. And walked away about two and a half hours into the interview. So that that gives you a sense of, you know, what kind of investigation was run. They just took them at their word. They didn't test their stories. Bob Mueller, we believe, uh, is able to, you know, subpoena a lot of the stuff. We're going to go after uh, a lot of the money laundering pieces that we don't think Bob Mueller uh, is doing. I I think he's staying uh, very narrowly within his mandate and probably uh, will not go after money laundering. But because of Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump saying that they had a lot of Russian money coming in, all the deals we know that uh, candidate Trump wanted to do with the well, Russians. Well, now we know Michael Cohen was dealing in 2016 right. with the Russians. That's on, right. On and, Deutsche Bank, and Deutsche Bank had been fined before uh, for laundering millions of dollars uh, with the Russians. And that's the president's uh, lender. We think we have, as you would say in the law, you know, probable cause uh, to look further uh, into that. Um,
0: you say these witnesses made assertions that weren't corroborated because the committee chair wouldn't allow that to happen. Uh, do you believe that people came before you and perjured themselves?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that they were held accountable. And we have asked a number of times to send their transcripts to the Mueller team. Uh, but because of separation of powers, uh, you know, we have to actually vote that out. Uh, the Mueller team, despite what the public thinks, they don't have access to our transcripts. So. Every time we asked the Republicans to send transcripts over to Mueller, again, they protected, uh, you know, the president's friends. So this will
0: happen in the first week in January, presumably. Yeah.
1: Um, And, And David, I just want people to know that the reason we are going to continue to investigate it is not, you know, because of any... Palace intrigue as to what's going on, you know, at the White House. Uh, it's because there's an election coming up in 2020. The Russians are just as determined. You saw with this recent release of Facebook, yes. social media. Yes, ads, they're going to continue to try and weaponize social media. So we want to, you know, have a way to make the American people aware, make sure our intelligence communities can intervene as these attacks happen, but also on the money laundering piece. Understand if the president. Is financially uh, compromised because it's not just with the Russians. I think as we're as it's playing out in real time, you're seeing that his prior dealings with the Saudis and the way that they've been able to flatter him and take him over there, throw a big parade for him, that that's driving uh, you know policies that are counter to traditional uh, American values.
0: Uh, do you believe that that is related to his business
1: dealings? It, it, it smells like it, uh, and, and again, it looks a lot like. He can't confront Vladimir Putin despite overwhelming evidence of what Putin has done. He can't confront, uh, you know, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. It seems like, you know, that is related to the you know, financial uh, interest that he has with the Saudis. And I think, you know, he is often restrained in, you know, truly being a commander in chief because he's thinking about, you know, his business dealings.
0: There is this emoluments clause in the yeah. Constitution that was designed to prevent presidents from doing just this thing. You, you've you introduced a bill yeah. to try and strengthen uh, yeah. enforcement of that.
1: It would make it a crime. Uh, you know, right now, the emoluments clause says that, you know, you can't receive a gift from, you know, a foreign uh, leader, uh, but, there's, you know, there's no actual penit penalty. You can stop it uh, from happening uh, or, you know, essentially... Uh, you know, go back and make it have to be returned, but we would actually make it a crime for the president, vice president, anyone in their family uh, to receive a gift so that you can be criminally accountable. There's going to be so many bills, I think. There's going to be an era of reformation, uh, you know, post-Trump, just as there was... Uh, post-Nixon, as he exposes vulnerabilities in our democracy, we're going to have to have a cleanup crew, uh, you know, to fix it. Do you anticipate some of these bills will get passed in the next two years? I think in the House, um, there's not a lot of courage uh, in the Senate. Um, you know, they they seem to be in, in deep, deep denial. It, it was really disappointing last week to, to see, you know, a statesman like Orrin Hatch uh, basically just say, what do I care that, you know, Donald Trump wasn't directing, you know, these payoffs that violated campaign finance law? I think, you know, someone, you know, put that statement in front of him the next day and said, sir, this doesn't sound like you because you saw that he issued, you know, a correction to that and said that, you know, the rule of law is important. Uh, But it seems like with this president, so many of them have either just looked the other way or they've taken out, you know, uh, a paddle and just are paddling in his same direction. Uh, Or they, yeah, or they leave. Uh, We just saw Lamar
0: Alexander, uh, you know, really kind of a center-right, yeah. Uh, uh, pillar of the Senate say yesterday that he won't be running again uh, in in Tennessee. Um, you represent Silicon Valley. Yeah. So you reference this uh, yeah. idea of the, Ru- not the idea, but the fact that the Russians weaponized social media in ways that benefited right. uh, President Trump. The uh, Senate report, uh, reports that were released yeah. this week uh, spoke in great detail that, particularly the efforts to suppress the vote and uh, African-American community among younger yeah. voters to drive them away from Hillary Clinton. In the stuff that you've seen
1: uh, was this consonant with the Trump strategy? Uh, well, it, it was an effort to just turn us against each other. Uh,
0: I, I understand what it was yeah. but was it something that mirrored what the Trump social media campaign was doing or did you guys have you guys not looked at that
1: no yes the trump social social media campaign very much relied uh, on using fear uh, as a mobilizing uh, tool uh, for its base
0: how about Uh, as a demobilizing tool for potential hillary voters right yes we saw that uh, so i guess the reason i'm asking that is do you think that get now that you know have the full picture of what the or a good picture of what yeah. the Russians were doing with social media—that is, uh, uh, trying to uh, drive African American right. voters in key states away from Hillary Clinton. And we know she lost, for example, in Wisconsin by twenty-seven thousand yeah. votes with a very low turnout right. in the city of Milwaukee. Lost uh, uh, in Michigan by eleven thousand right. votes, very uh, light turnout in the city of Detroit. Um, so they, ha- you know, to that degree, they had. Uh, Some success. Do you think this is evidence? At least, uh, uh, does it give you a suspicion of coordination?
1: Yeah. So that's what we were not able to pursue. It it looks like coordination, and and so we know Cambridge Analytica was the vendor that the Trump team used. Cambridge Analytica. Steve Bannon
0: had an interest in that firm.
1: That's right, and and they had uh, illegally obtained uh, Facebook user data that they used to target, and so. You know, one, I'm I'm not happy with Facebook that they would allow Facebook employees to embed with the Trump team knowing that because Facebook knew in 2014 that Cambridge Analytica had this illicitly obtained data, yet they still chose to work with a campaign that had hired Cambridge to be its vendor. So that uh, has bothered me. Second, um, we would like to bring in the, the Cambridge uh, witnesses and subpoena the Cambridge records uh, and look at whether there was any links. We have evidence. What about
0: Brad Parscale, who ran their social media campaign? Now he's the president's campaign manager for 2020.
1: Yeah. When we interviewed these witnesses in the voluntary interviews, you know, with Brad Parscale and Jared Kushner uh, and some of the others, it was just like this, you know, Jared would say, no, no, I didn't. This do is that. a podcast. So yeah. So I'm pointing just, my fingers in different directions. Yes, right. So Jared would say, oh, no, I, I didn't You know, I oversaw digital, but really it was just Brad who worked on that. And Brad would say, oh, you know, it was actually Cambridge Analytica that, you know, did this. So everyone, you know, would point fingers uh, at someone else as the one that was truly responsible uh, for the digital campaign. And unless we're able to subpoena records and as a former prosecutor, you know, that... For me, that's where, you know, the real evidence would exist, looking at communication logs, uh, looking at, uh, you know, how the data uh, was used and targeted and and matching that up uh, with what Facebook has uh, and, and knows Russia did. I'll just say this, though. We know now that our adversaries, Russia and God knows who else who sees this as a green light to do this. Uh, we know their capabilities and, and you know whether you think facebook worked with the russians or maliciously against our democracy or not i don't think they did i think they were just naive and they saw you know a profit uh, motivation now that we know uh, what are we going to do about it i think there should be a duty to report uh, on every social medias uh, end that if they see uh, interference being run through their platforms, that they have to tell the FBI, that doesn't exist uh, right now. Uh, I wrote legislation that would put a duty to report on any campaign aid or candidate. If you're offered information by a foreign national uh, that is illicitly obtained, you have to tell the FBI. Right. We can't tell you how many people uh, who came to us. Well, I was
0: in a, I was in a yeah. a few presidential campaigns. I, I will tell you that if we were
1: approached in that way, that we would have gone to. We would have gone to our lawyers who would have gone yeah. to the FBI. Yeah. That's what honest people do. And I'm, I'm not foolish enough to think that writing that bill would have stopped these Trump uh, characters from receiving the information. But at least you would have a way to hold them accountable. But it was very frustrating to interview these individuals, show them the communications that we had, that they had of being offered you know, Russian dirt or to arrange meetings between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And then you ask them, well, who did you tell this to? And they said no one. And so I think that duty should be on social media, should be on the campaigns.
0: You represent Silicon Valley uh, or part of Silicon yeah. Valley. Um, and, you you know, you, you say, well, I don't think they were um, intentionally uh, cooperating with the Russians in a nefarious yeah. way. They were trying to maximize their profit. I, I accept that but they they also weren't very forthcoming in their right. interactions with Congress why right.
1: I, I think they uh, you know it's embarrassing uh, and they probably you know feel some sense of shame that their platforms were used uh, to you know weaponize the foreign adversaries effort to undermine our democracy but what I have told them is it is better to just completely be forthcoming now than to have just a drip 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 uh, of information coming out about. Are you satisfied that they are being forthcoming? No, no, I'm not. But I I think a new Congress uh, is going to be tougher uh, on them. And I'm going to introduce in a new Congress uh, the social media duty to report piece, which is the counterpart to the the individual. But I also believe that, you know, when it comes to these social media companies, they can go a hell of a lot farther and just making sure the user has awareness. Uh, Because ultimately, we can write all the laws uh, we can to stop this. But if everyday users don't have, you know, awareness about where the sources of information are coming from, uh, then, you know, we're in, you know, pretty muddy waters.
0: Last question on all this, because I want to get to the who the hell is Eric Swalwell portion of the podcast. Um, Do you, you mentioned uh, the fact that you think some people perjured themselves is, is, uh, is Jared Kushner among them?
1: Kushner uh, was one of the witnesses who was being told he didn't have to answer questions. Uh-huh. So we weren't really even able to probe uh, Kushner uh, very much because he had Republicans uh, protecting him every time. You know, we got close to information that we really needed. Uh, Roger Stone is one who, just by his own public updates, uh, constantly sending in new uh, letters to us after his testimony because he, you know, had, you know. Recalled something that he didn't tell us. I think he uh, is candidate one uh, for you know perjury So you
0: represent Silicon Valley, but you didn't start in Silicon Valley. No, you, I didn't you started which, in you know, a maybe serendipitous for you in Iowa yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Tell
1: me about that. Yeah, my dad was a cop uh, and My mom worked a bunch of odd jobs. She made dollhouses in our garage baked wedding cakes in the kitchen and raised four boys and had a very large unlicensed, which, daycare. <clears throat> f- which
0: is a job. Yeah, it was actually a, a huge job in and of itself. I have two,
1: and yeah, sometimes and boys, it was. Boys are, uh, eleven kids challenging because she ran like a very large unlicensed daycare facility with kids running around. And you know, I, I learned uh, you know about doing the right thing in Iowa uh, when one of my very first memories. Uh, was my dad uh, is the chief of police of this town Algona was about to be fired by the city council and i didn't know what my mom and dad were talking about they just constantly kept saying the word fired uh, and i thought he was going to be like thrown in a fire or something i remember you know being scared about what it meant but he had given tickets to the mayor and city council members when they had parked their vehicles in the red zone at the Kasouth County Fair and His guys said to him, hey, chief, these guys are saying they can park wherever they want. What do you want me to do? And my dad said, well, no one can. Had them towed? Yeah, he had them towed. He he cited them and towed them. And then at the very next council meeting, the mayor brought this up and moved to fire my dad in a public meeting. And I followed now some of the Des Moines Register coverage of it because they were just as outraged as my dad was. And I always figured, well, this is my dad's side of the story. I love the guy. I'm sure there's some other side. But I should have given him the benefit of the doubt because going back recently and reading those register stories about it, he was in the right. And he was willing to lose his job, wasn't going to reverse the tickets. Uh, and, you know, we packed up and moved west. And, uh, you know, that was the end of his police career. He also
0: irritated uh, people by enforcing uh,
1: illegal uh, <laughs> drinking in city parks and selling alcohol to yeah. minors. Yeah. So He was this 30-something chief who had come to a town where they didn't really have many— uh, DUI uh, enforcement, and so the DUI rate, I think, spiked by like 400 percent when he became chief. And that's just the you know that's the person I saw uh, in our house as my dad. You know, he's a real stickler for the rules, uh, and didn't give anyone, not even his kids, a shortcut. And you know that inspired me, uh, you know, to want to go into law enforcement as a prosecutor. And well, and as you, I think you mentioned your brothers are police officers, yeah. all of them. Yeah, uh, two of them are cops, and one of them. Married a cop, so we've got a lot of cops uh, in the family, and they their dream for me was to just be the first one in the family uh, to go to college, Uh, and you know the only person who wanted that more than they did was me, Uh, and you know knowing the limit, you got a soccer scholarship. That's right, and and, you know I I came from a town. We settled on a town called Dublin, California, and you know Dublin uh, was a bedroom community. Uh, It was I would describe as a low income, low expectations town. Uh, At the time, where only a third of the kids at my high school went on uh, to college. Uh, We didn't have any Fortune 500 companies around us. Uh, We were best known at the time for having the most fast food restaurants uh, per capita. And there was not a travel team in Dublin that I could play on if I wanted to get better. So I had to wear another city's jersey uh, and go over to a competing town uh, and play for them. And that's where I learned uh, that their nickname for me uh, was Scrublin'. Because uh, that's what all the kids in the other communities around uh, called us, was Scrublin. So I kind of carried that chip on my shoulder for a long time and, and moved back home to Dublin uh, when I was a, a city council member. And I saw in, in 2006... Well, before you get... Yeah. Let's just close out the story here because you got a soccer scholarship
0: to Campbell University yeah. in North Carolina. Deep South,
1: Southern Baptist School. Uh, and, you know, I, David, I, I picked a school on three things. I wouldn't recommend it to my own kids, but... I wanted to play Division One because I was pretty competitive. I needed it to be paid for because my parents had three other brothers, and I wanted to play as a freshman because I was very impatient. So that was the only school in the whole country uh, that fit uh, that profile. And so I went to the Deep South uh, and uh, played for two years there, uh, got injured. Broke, broke my, your thumbs. Was huh? a goalkeeper. You were go- go- a yeah. goaltender. It was, it, soccer was not even close to being my favorite sport. Football and baseball were, but I weren't great there. I, I Goalkeeper was my least favorite position, you know, playing soccer. I loved running around and kicking the ball, but it was the only one I was good at, so it was kind of like a job for me, uh, you know, to play that position and put myself between the goalposts, you know, and 11 other players running at you, but it got me to college, and as soon as I got injured uh, and could see beyond the next game, uh, it was a high school uh, mentor who suggested applying for an internship on Capitol Hill, and so... You worked for Ellen Tauscher, who was a yeah. A congresswoman
0: from california
1: ellen was a blue dog congresswoman from california i didn't know at the time whether i was a republican or a democrat the first time i'd been to washington so there was
0: no real politics other than the politics that you knew uh from iowa where your dad got booted by the yeah. the, the, the the powers that be but you guys were wasn't politics wasn't a constant presence in your home
1: not at all I, my, my parents were republican I, you know they would cheer every four years for whoever the Republican uh, nominee was. In 2000, uh, I went with my best friend uh, to, or in 2001, I went with my best friend to Washington for the first time to watch George W. Bush sworn in. Uh, That best friend ended up becoming Bush's chief speechwriter and wrote his memoir. And uh, who's that? uh, Chris Michelle. But we Uh grew up in the same street. We were both the first in our families to go to college. Uh, But, you know, I, Really didn't know if I was a Republican or a Democrat uh, then. It wasn't until I did that internship uh, for Ellen Tauscher that, you know, I, I fell in love with, you know, being at the center of gravity for helping people, but also uh, could start to see the difference between, you know, who Republicans were and, and who Democrats were. And then you uh, you went to university, of, finished up at the University of Maryland. I was a, a last-minute transfer student. Uh, I could have gone back and healed on the scholarship, but... After being on the Hill, my eyes were open. I loved doing that job. Transferred to Maryland. I joined a Jewish engineering fraternity. I wasn't Jewish. Certainly wasn't smart enough to be an engineer, uh, but that was the only way I could get housing. Played on their Our intramural campus. soccer That's team, right. no doubt. That's right. And, uh, I know how these things work. And you know, immediately got involved in student governments and created a position on the College Park City Council for a student and uh, served as the first student uh, there. But I was in a hurry uh, to get to law school and get back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went to University of Maryland Law School out in Baltimore, uh, a city that reminded me a lot of Oakland, where I'd ultimately uh, end up working. Uh, just you know, blue collar city uh, with a lot of grit, uh, but also just a lot of you know racial justice issues that I would see uh, is in the public defender's office in Baltimore when I worked there for a clinic, uh, but also uh, as a prosecutor in Oakland, uh, two cities that I love, but. You know, have struggled Did, you, did out Did you become a
0: prosecutor right away after law school?
1: Yeah, first job. Uh, I clerked uh, between my second and third year of law school in the DA's office in Alameda County, but uh, went back to, to Oakland to do that. I always, just to piss my dad off, I threatened to become a public defender because I knew that <laughs> would get under his skin. And he was already upset enough that I was interning for a Democrat. Uh, but I, I knew in his dream, and he'd always tell me, was that he broke his back on the streets being a cop he wanted me to do justice uh, in a courtroom. That was his dream for his son. And what did you learn from that experience? Well, I, le- I learned, you know, about you know right and wrong uh, in our criminal justice system, about standing up uh, for victims. But I also, I, when I was 19 years old, I had a major screw up uh, when I had come home from Christmas break, and uh, a friend of mine was working at a department store, and I was Christmas shopping, and he gave me a very generous discount I did not deserve, and there was a sting. We both got arrested. My dad was crushed because he thought it would mean I wouldn't go to How uh, law generous school. a discount did you... I mean, I think it was like, wasn't shoplifting. No, I paid $30 for like $200 worth of clothes. That's a good discount. That's a good discount. Yes. discount. And I didn't deserve it. And uh, my dad was crushed because he thought, you know, I wouldn't go to law school. So they dipped into money they didn't have to get a lawyer. And, uh, you know, I went to the courtroom that I would ultimately sit in just four years later as a prosecutor uh, and, you know, went on probation and I saw as a prosecutor that there were a lot of, especially young black kids, that didn't get that kind of chance. Yeah, um, a lot
0: of, a lot of, a lot of uh, people who, just, who sit in jails yeah. waiting for their case That's to right. be processed because That's, they didn't have the money even that your parents had.
1: To get them representation. That's right. They, they didn't have money for the bail. or They didn't have money for a lawyer. Uh, and so I, I saw there you know the just inequities uh, in our criminal justice uh, system. I also learned a lot though about just you probably had to, you probably also were responsible for putting some people there. Put a lot of bad uh, people but uh, away. Bad and, people.
0: But what about not bad people?
1: In, in with not bad people, I I try to remember that own experience of mine. And you know I, I believe uh, deeply in, in second chances. And when I was in Baltimore. Uh, I followed uh, David Simon's work, uh, the writer from the Baltimore Sun and the writer of *The Wire*, and he had said uh, that every every person uh, deserves a second act, and we should all be able to write our own endings. And if I saw a young person who had screwed up uh, and was, you know, worthy of, you know, being given a second chance and wasn't going to be a threat to anyone around them, I'd always do all I could to make sure that, uh, you know, they weren't defined by that uh, screw up and. You know, it was hard, uh, you know, because, you know, you have judges sometimes that don't like those deals. Your colleagues sometimes, you know, will call you weak if if they think that you're just letting people off. And I don't think I got it right every time. Uh, I know I didn't get it right uh, every time. But I, I did see, uh, you know, that there is a justice system uh, that I think limits the potential, especially of young black men, more than any other uh, race in America. There is a uh, – there
0: is. A, by the way, we have Brian Stevenson on this. Yeah. Uh, podcast uh, recently. It's a good week for him, I think. It was inspiring. Yeah, well, what about this uh, this bill that uh, is uh, a modest reform that's passing through? It's called the First Step Act, I think for a reason. Yeah, but The president put his weight behind it, I guess because of Jared Kushner. And there is this sort of coalition between uh, the left and the right yeah. on this issue of mass incarceration and the, the you know, we we have 2.2 or... What I think that's the number of million Americans incarcerated overwhelmingly for nonviolent, non-disproportionately, I should' say, minorities. So it's yeah. going to
1: pass. you're going to see thousands of people who will be released uh, who are nonviolent offenders, and they'll get out of jail and have time cut off their sentences immediately. That's a good thing. The frustration for me is that in Washington, whether it's criminal justice reform, immigration, or health care, we always deal with issues when they're at our doorstep. Uh, and it, we're in crisis mode, rather than when they should have been addressed. Like on immigration, we're not doing anything to address what's going on in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, economically, and you know with safety. We just wait till they come to our country, and then it's wall, no wall, let them in, you know, let them stay. In
0: fact, the president has spoken of cutting off funding.
1: That's right to those countries, which will only make it worse. And I, I say that with about criminal justice reform because sentencing reform is needed uh, because if we don't fix sentencing Mm -hmm. you're just going to see more and more people go to jail and then they're going to have their sentences cut I'd rather we find ways to divert them from going to prison whether it's through addiction uh, or jobs investments uh, in their communities and I just want to say the other thing I learned as a prosecutor uh, was the devastating effects uh, of gun violence and one of the homicide cases that I put in front of a jury uh, was a young man named Gary Jackson and I'll never forget sitting in this shabby uh, Oakland witness interview room uh, with Gary's mom when I introduced myself to her right before the trial and she Felicia was her name and, and Felicia was crying and asking me you know how could he die and, and she kept saying you know he was shot in the leg that, that, that's where you'd want to be sh- you know if you're gonna get shot the arm or the leg that's where you'd you know figure you'd be lucky to be shot and I was wondering the same thing And it was the ballistics expert and the pathologist who told us that the ak-47 that was fired at gary 40 times and only hit him once because of the power of that long rifle round didn't matter where he was shot he probably wasn't going to have a chance and that's where i saw with assault weapons uh that you know these weapons you know when you can just when you have a pistol grip and you can shoot indiscriminately even the worst shot, if they hit you once, uh, the chances of you surviving are very, very slim. And you proposed
0: a a buyback of assault weapons followed by uh, a a law banning them.
1: I think it's the only way to do it. There's 15 million assault weapons out there. If we only ban future manufacturing, we'll leave those out there for over 100 years worth of circulation. So I think you have to buy them back. I threw out, just for argument's sake, $1,000. I think you get around the takings clause in the Constitution if you actually, you know, compensate someone. There are millions and millions of these weapons yeah. out there. 15 million. Uh, but, you know, it. I would. the cost of buying them back, uh, I think, would be less than the cost of more and more loss and carnage, uh, as we're seeing in our communities. And I, I think we need bold solutions. And, I, and David, as Democrats, I think we have started to negotiate against ourselves when it comes to gun violence. You know, we thought after... Uh, Sandy Hook, we could at least get background checks passed. They didn't pass. And then after Vegas, we said, okay, let's just ban bump stocks. That hasn't been passed. So we just keep kind of mm-hmm. going you know, smaller and smaller when I think the solutions are You're big.
0: headed to Iowa, and yeah. again, we're going to get to that. Uh, and you're having a, uh, a town hall meeting on this very issue, yeah. which is an interesting thing to do because uh, gun control is probably not
1: top of the list in, in Iowa. Actually, is Uh, you know, voters uh, in Iowa care uh, deeply about gun control, not just background checks. They want to see assault weapons banned, and so I'm bringing Cameron Kasky. Uh, He's the young man from uh, Parkland who stood up to Marco Rubio, if you remember. He asked Rubio Mm -hmm. if he'd stop taking NRA money, and so Cameron and I are going to do a town hall uh, with students uh, in Iowa and and you know really start this conversation. But I I think we need bold solutions not nibble around the edges not go for the lowest common denominator i think the american people are with us they spoke loud and clear by taking out 17 a rated nra uh, members of congress this last election and i think you know it's time that we show them we can deliver on that you went uh, on the dublin city council yeah. uh, how soon after
0: you got back home did you run for the city council
1: i wanted to run immediately and that would have been foolish uh, and i had a mentor the same one who got me the Internship and directed me that way. He said, Eric, you know, don't come in hot, relearn your city, apply for a commission. And I thought, okay, fine, I'll, I'll apply for the planning commission. And he said, no, 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 <laughs> you're going to be on the arts commission. And I told him, I said, I don't know shit about art. What, what am I going to do on the arts commission? He said, well, you're going to learn how art, and you know, public art works and, you know, the heritage of the city. So after two years on the arts commission, I wanted to run for city council. And he said, no. Now you go on the planning commission. So I learned how you know planning in the city worked, and after that, ran for the city council. And I'm, I'm glad he did that, and I give advice to young people all the time when they ask if they should go home and run for Congress. I tell them, had I run for the city council in 2006, two things would have happened. I would have lost. But I also would have been so demoralized that I don't think I ever would have run for office again. And
0: now, is this guy? Your is he still around? Is he works the, for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. He he was a teacher, uh, and he became our district director, and now he's our uh, political director.
0: Remind me in a second to ask you what he says about you running for president, since he's the guy who yeah. puts the brakes on when you're too yep. impulsive. Um, so you you
1: uh, you you served
0: on the city council. Um, that was your first legislative experience.
1: I was inspired to see so many people who cared about the city, like Tim Sobrani, this uh, teacher of mine, and, and so many mayors and city council members over about a 10-year period who didn't like that we had uh, you know, low expectations and, and didn't have much development in the city. And so we invested in building a new school uh, in the town, a premier high school. Uh, we invested in attracting high-end employers by having a sales tax reimbursement program that gave back uh, any employer that invested 50% of their sales tax. Uh, And we did smart growth. Instead of just putting affordable housing in one part of town, we do mixed uh, market rate and affordable housing so that there was accountability and you couldn't just forget about affordable housing and let it go to blight. And so we now have, David, a Whole Foods in the town, which I think is a sign that you've made it uh, You know, when you have a grocery store that no one can afford to shop at. Uh, you know, We have seen it go from Scrublin uh, to Dublin, and I'm proud of the work that all those leaders and I did.
0: In
1: 2012, you took on a
0: kind of iconic liberal member of Congress, Pete Stark we mentioned him earlier. Yeah. Um, any hesitation about about doing that
1: yeah and i i didn't think i was the one that should do it at first when he got redistricted uh, into our area uh, i just thought our area was becoming home to a lot of young families because of the new tech economy that was coming and that a 40-year incumbent just wasn't going to be able to you know be a voice for that he As,
0: ironically was elected in 1972 on the same kind of platform he was a young guy ran against uh george uh, george p miller, p. miller. Yeah, who was also an iconic figure, and he defeated him. So it was another generational. Uh, and and I, I
1: asked people, I asked uh, friends who were elected officials to run, and and I told them that this guy's just not going to represent us, and they all said no. And then I realized, well, why am I taking myself out of this conversation? Maybe I should do it. And you know, I remember the party chair sitting me down and saying, "Look, you should run for mayor, and then you should run." You know for assembly and then state senate and then run for congress but right now you're not even a rung on the ladder for this and it was then that i you know thought about maybe just not doing it but ultimately my gut told me that the u.s congress doesn't take reservations it's walk-ins only and if i wanted to change the community where i grew up you know i was gonna have to do it alone at first and it wasn't until election night Uh, when the results came in that it even felt inevitable. It always felt impossible. You were the beneficiary,
0: one of the first beneficiaries of the change in system in California to a so-called jungle primary. You don't have party primaries. It's everybody in and the first two finishers run against each other. So you have Democrats running against Democrats. If if there had been a primary, you probably would have lost. So what are the merits of that System, are you believe uh, you are the beneficiary yeah. of it? Make the case yeah. for it as people are talking about reform
1: yeah. all over. I supported it uh, before it passed, not knowing how it would affect it was me. Was done by initiative, voter initiative. That's right, and I support it now. And, and the reason is because in the primaries, typically it's low turnout primaries where you know the the parties, the party extremes <laughs> show up, and most folks in the middle don't feel like they're spoken to. In a top two system, you can't ignore. Anyone. So in my district, you've got about you know forty uh, percent of the voters are Democratic, twenty-five percent uh, are uh, Republican, and then the balance you know are declined to state. So in a top-two primary, yeah, independence yeah. So you. You have to talk to all huh. of them. So I knocked on Republican doors. Pete Stark ran a traditional campaign where he only communicated with Democrats. And and I think you're held accountable by everybody. And, you know, Democrats opposed that reform. And look at the number of seats that we've picked up in California, over 10 uh, since that reform uh, was put in place. So all the nightmare scenarios that were put out there just have not materialized. Well, a companion reform was in redistricting the Independent redistricting. Uh, and so Pete Stark was not protected anymore about, you know, by people who, you know, wanted to give him lines where he could win. Uh, and that's why he got drawn in uh, to my area. They drew, you know, the lines, God forbid, you know, based on geography and communities of interest. And, you know, if every state did that, and that's going to be a part of our good government reforms in the first hundred days, is to have Independent redistricting in every congressional race. I think you'd see uh, Democrats uh, compete in a lot more of the country. You, uh,
0: you are part of. You're a founder, and part of something called the Future Forum,
1: in in Congress, which is what 27 young Democratic members. And we just doubled it in in 2014. Uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, found me on the floor and asked me to go. You know, sit. Uh, in one of the rows with her. And I, you know, it's always terrifying when she wants to sit down and talk to you. Um, She's a force. Uh, And she said, Eric, you know, we've got uh, a lot of new members at this time. We had 14 members in our 40s and under. She said, I'd like you to take that group, go across the country, listen to young people, uh, learn from them and come back here and legislate for them. Uh, so we did that. i have gone to over 50 cities, uh, 26 states uh, across the country, in listening, learning and acting. And so we doubled the group from 14 to 16, uh, up to 27 members. And we just in this most recent election are now at 53. Uh, so 53 members in their 40s and under, uh, and they look like, act like, talk like uh, America, and they're diverse in every way. And I think that's, that's the best. That's an impressive
0: message. group of people who just got elected. Lauren Underwood here. Uh, yeah, from here. Right, right here in Illinois. Yeah. Huge upset, 32-year-old African-American woman from a district that's probably 94, 95% white mm-hmm. in the exurbs and
1: rural area west of Chicago. And most of them never imagined themselves two years ago, running for Congress. They, they saw the Trump administration come in. For a lot of them, it was health care, uh, like for Lauren and like Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan or Colin Allred down in uh, Texas. Uh, but they and, and they weren't climbers. You know, These aren't people that were gaming out how they were going to get uh, to Congress. And I, I think if you're looking for hope, uh, it's in this group. Let me
0: ask you a question. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Let me ask you a question um, about Pelosi. I have a, a high regard for her because I was there during a very yeah. uh, productive but challenging time in the first two years of the Obama administration. And I saw how, um, how pow- what a force she was. I mean, there wouldn't be an Affordable Care Act. I've said it <clears throat> before without her. Um, but there is this issue that you look at your top three leaders, they're all, um, they're all nearing 80. Yeah. And you talk about your group of 53, all yeah. under 40. There is this tension, this desire for, for change, for generational uh, change. So what's your message to—some you know, of your peers peel, peeled away. I thought she was pretty masterful in yeah. putting together her coalition to get reelected speaker, which I assume she will on January 3rd. But what do you say to these other members? Because you're, you know, you're kind of an impatient young guy yourself. Yeah.
1: So I, when I got elected, she had worked against me by supporting Pete Stark. And I didn't know if she was going to hold a grudge. And she didn't. She put me to work. And as I said, two years later, she asked me to lead this group. She put me as the youngest member on the House Intelligence uh, Committee. She put me on the leadership team uh, in this most recent uh, Congress. And I've been the youngest person at that table. So I've seen her develop a young person. But also, I see that you know she sees herself now as a bridge to the next generation of leadership. And so, you know, she's going to lead us through this tumultuous time. She's the best pitcher we could have on the mound. The American people saw that uh, in that Oval Office meeting uh, just last week. But I do think that, you know, people who are stepping up right now and leading like Hakeem Jeffries, who's the the chair of our caucus in our group, uh, you know, that's the future. Uh, it, it's the people... By the way, are- I
0: just read a, a, a piece this morning, you may have seen it too, that said that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. is thinking of Uh, fielding a candidate against Hakeem Jeffries. And it speaks to potential tensions within the caucus. Um, How did you react to that? Yeah,
1: well, same way he did, which is, you know, welcome to do it. Uh, You know, I think democracy is a good thing. I actually, I I think Hakeem is terrific. He's the one, he was the force uh, in the House for this criminal justice uh, first step uh, bill. I mean, he worked you know, Republicans and Democrats to get it passed. But, I, you know, I talk to Alexandra uh, often. I like her. I, I think she's a burst of energy and transparency. I was at a, I spoke at the junior state uh, convention two weeks ago, and the 14-year-old who was checking me in uh, said to me, she said, Congressman, how was your uh, caucus vote this past week? And I looked at her and I said, how did you know that? I don't even think my wife knew that we were having, you know, this caucus mm-hmm. leadership vote and she mm-hmm. said well i follow uh, alexandra ocasio cortez uh, on instagram and uh, learned how well, everything she's got works millions of followers so you've got this whole new generation uh, that didn't really pay attention to politics and now they're getting a window into it from her and i think that's a benefit sure there's gonna be disagreements on policy and and uh, my my hope is that we see ourselves uh, in this next two years as protectors that we have to protect health care protect paychecks protect against corruption and for the future of healthcare, energy, uh, gun violence, that we put that and project that on the 2020 field. And we don't you know, put ourselves in positions where we're taking tough votes, where we don't have consensus, and they're going to die anyway because the Senate won't take it up or the president won't sign it. We should just protect. That's why the voters sent us here. The 2020 candidates, I think, can chart the future of the party. This is actually a very lively
0: debate within yeah. the Democratic Party. There are people who say, first of all, uh, the republicans have not played by the yeah. rules should not be cooperating with them you have the majority you should yeah. uh you should run them over and um a lot of those people also are yeah. were on the impeachment ban- bandwagon from yeah. the beginning
1: you being right in the middle of it i mean what is your message to them you know, going across the country and, again, spending a lot of time in Indiana with my wife's family, a state that voted for Barack Obama in 2008. I remember that, yeah. Those folks, they, they want us to get things done. Uh, they, they're, they don't like the president. A lot of them are, are frustrated with him. But I don't think they think that you should just stop talking to him at the expense of, you know, their paycheck and their hard work. You know, adding up to something. And so I, I, I reject that. And I, I, I can compartmentalize. And I actually think the president can compartmentalize where we can collaborate uh, and where we're going to have to investigate, because he too is going to have to show something to the American people, especially if the economy is starting to dip. On impeachment, he might be impeached. He may be impeached. Uh, and for me, the struggle as a prosecutor is that he's not above the law. And it's hard to, you, know, you have the political question of whether the Senate would remove him, but what we do with his conduct will inform and guide future presidents and their White House counsel. And if they see that Trump got away with all of this because we didn't want to impeach because of the political question, you could see you know the line starting to move as far as what's acceptable. And so I think the best thing we can do is investigate, If there is conduct that's crossed a red line, put together an airtight case, seek bipartisan buy-in, and make sure the American people, if it comes to that, know why this is the only remedy.
0: You know, Rudy Giuliani said last weekend that uh, even if the president did what Michael Cohen suggests he did, that it wasn't a crime um, because it wasn't really a violation of the campaign fine. And he said if it was, it was a yeah, not a criminal matter. Uh, what do you believe
1: that the president committed a crime based on what you see? I think he betrayed our country uh, by being so eager to work with the Russians. And, and I always. But thought, what about on the the matter that Cohen pled to with the payoffs oh, to the, the women? Yeah. yeah, I think he's. There's probably a sealed indictment uh, waiting for him. Yes, uh, but, but I don't, Does that warrant impeachment? I don't think so. I, I think that warrants probing whether he acted in a shadowy way with his business dealings with Russia uh, and the Saudis and being eager to work with them. I don't think the American people want to go into porn star payoffs. That's a loser for us. But I think that conduct, those prior bad acts, that propensity evidence uh, would be useful uh, for other ways that he acts. It's like a leopard doesn't change his spots. If he's willing to do that, you know, with these two women, he was probably willing to skirt the rules on his finances.
0: So you talked earlier about, uh, you wanted to go somewhere where you could play as a freshman. You talked about wanting mm-hmm. to go back to the city council and run for the city yeah. council as soon as you graduated from law school. And now uh, you're spending a lot of time in Iowa, yeah. and it appears as if you are running for president of the United States. I mentioned to someone who is involved with another potential candidate that yeah. I was coming well, – I was driving over here on the yeah. phone, I said, I'm going to uh, have a podcast with Eric Swalwell. And he said, who? <laughs> Uh, I need to call him
1: and introduce myself.
0: Yeah. Well, well, you may uh, see him on the campaign trail, and you can do that. Tell me what you have in mind and whether that fellow who's on your staff, who's your mentor now, isn't saying, you know, maybe you should wait.
1: Yeah. I think the country— Of course, he works for you now, so what's he going to say? Right, right. Uh, Well, they all are candid with me, (laughs) but— I think the country needs somebody who will go big, be bold, and do good. And, and my generation, I, at leading this group Future Forum, I've seen a generation that is insightful, that is inventive and optimistic. But they see a Washington, as we sit here a couple of days away from a shutdown, that's so incremental, governs crisis to crisis, and works in gridlock, that we can't unleash their ideas to solve health care, to solve climate and energy to solve gun violence, to go to public financing uh, for our campaigns. We're just not doing anything big. And I, I think when you go big, that's when you have the best well, chance to— Well, we went to, to public financing
0: know, once. That kind of got shredded. Right. In fact, we in the Obama campaign did uh, were, are guilty of having played a role in that in response to what we saw sure. as a shredding by others. but. But anyway, go ahead.
1: So one, I, I come from a generation that is very, as I said, optimistic and wants to do big things. And I'd like that to be a part of the, the 2020 campaign. I think that can get us out of this rut we're in. Two, I actually, uh, my experience on the Intelligence Committee and on the Homeland Security Committee, while our democracy has been on the ropes, makes me one of the most experienced national security candidates uh, in the field. I think only Joe Biden uh, you know, in government would have more national security experience uh, than I've had. Uh, you know, from my work, uh, especially in the last uh, two years. And I'm connected to everyday Americans. I have just under $100,000 in student loan debt. My wife and I have two kids under two. We rent right now because that student loan debt holds us back from being able to buy a home. So I see a generation that So this is a way to get public housing. <laughs> <You> know, <it's, laughs> That's just right. what I'm hearing That's right. Here. Uh, but no, I, I understand- um, what this generation uh, is going through. The promise of America is that if you work hard, you do better, you look at your kids, the next generation, and dream bigger. And most people right now, I think, aren't realizing that. It's not fulfilled uh, everywhere. Uh, And and then, you know, finally, because I've gotten, you know, across the country, uh, I've seen the people that are disconnected, who haven't been seen, haven't been heard, and I don't think they were wrong by rolling the dice and thinking that the billionaire developer from Manhattan who promised they'd that He'd fix their problems, uh, they weren't wrong for believing in him. He has just been incapable of delivering for them, and their problems still exist. And so, they still need someone who will see them and hear them. And I, I think, you know, I've already seen and heard them, uh, and because I'm from where they are, I'm for that. You believe that there'll be a generational pull here?
0: I do. Uh, I think I mean, the- you've got a bunch of candidates, uh, uh, Joe Biden being among them, but uh, Mike Bloomberg. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who are uh, my, uh, up in years,
1: but also up in the polls. Yeah, it, it's early. Uh, but when you look at who our best have been uh, to win the White House, you know, going all the way back to Kennedy, from Kennedy to Carter, to Clinton, to Obama, and take out Johnson because of how he came in. But those were next generation page forward. Uh, candidates and i think we're best when we look forward uh and when we go backward we we haven't been able to
0: win they also were senators and and governors i think the last congressman to get elected was james a garfield yeah. uh in the 19th century uh isn't there a bit of like uh, do more yeah uh, or is that just is that so 20th century
1: stuff i, I think that's washington you know mm-hmm. pundit stuff i, I think You know, my experience, seven years putting bad guys away and understanding criminal justice in a courtroom, working in a a small town that had investments and changed its fortune and believing that you can do that. If you can do that there, you can do it anywhere. Being in Congress and seeing the potential of the next generation and fighting for our country's democracy while it's been on the ropes, uh, I think that is, you know, ingredients for uh, a leader. Uh, who could bring us together and solve big problems.
0: Let me ask you about a colleague of yours who's sucking up a lot of oxygen right now in this presidential conversation. That's Beto O'Rourke. You know, everybody knows the story. Raised $80 million uh, against Ted Cruz. uh, Ran a very strong race. Finished uh, uh, better than any Democrat has in Texas. Now there's a great deal of buzz behind his candidacy doesn't that make it more difficult i mean his story is a parallel story
1: yeah Uh, and the country will not be worse off if we nominate beto and he wins the country won't be worse off if we nominate 30 of these individuals uh, who are considering
0: i'm just asking you though as a guy who's like gaming this out and is About to devote his life apparently to it. Is there any question you're going
1: to do this? Well, no one gives. There's not a person that would veto my decision other than my wife. So uh, I love Beto, but Beto's entrance isn't a factor that I uh, think about. And has she has she
0: given you a verdict on this?
1: My my wife's all in. Uh,
0: So it sounds like you're running. So Beto, um, but but doesn't he take up a lot of space for the profile of the kind of candidate who you're uh, who who that you're promoting here?
1: I I think he's viable, but I think it's going to be a long race. Uh, You know, there was a political... What do you think of him as a colleague? Great guy. Uh, And I think he's connected to, you know, everyday Americans. And he showed that in the places he was willing to go uh, and the people he was willing to work with. And he, I think, also could be a a uniter. Um, Now, this is going to be a long... Primary, uh, you know, and staying alive and uh, staying uh, in the mix is key. I have I have the benefit. I think the American people in the first hundred days will see me on the Judiciary and Intelligence Committee, uh, and they'll see me doing to do my job. you do all of that and run for president?
0: Because I, I I work for a guy. I mean, yeah. I would be the first to tell you yeah. that Barack Obama was uh, not in Washington nearly as much in two thousand and
1: seven than he was in two thousand five and six. Yeah, well, I've got a job to do in Washington, but also, you know, I've, I've got a family to raise, two kids under two, but a country that needs help. And so, you know, if I can do that, I, I will do that. And that's certainly a, a factor uh, in this decision. But the first 100 days, I think you're going to see, you know, those efforts to collaborate, those efforts to investigate. Uh, and the American people, I think, have already judged me, um, you know, as an effective uh, voice uh, with very little tools, uh, as an investigator, and I think with those who tools, those who those let's be fair. Yeah. I I I, yeah. I
0: say this with respect yeah. and admiration, but those who know you, yeah. I mean, if you were to poll right now, you, and that's, yeah. it's early. It's early. Yeah. I mean, Bill Clinton was uh, a yeah. uh, sort of an afterthought when he began that race yeah. in in 1991. Yeah. Uh, but um, there there's there are there's no dearth of applicants yeah. here. Yeah.
1: And and, and again, I, I believe that if I do this, it will be because I believe I can make a difference if I won, and I believe that I could win. It's not for any other reason. Uh, there's a lot of other reasons. There's a lot of other ways that you could, you know, sell a book or audition for a job without taking your family through this. You know? Are
0: you uh, daunted by the amount? You talk about campaign finance reform. Yeah. We don't have it now. Uh, you know, my estimation is that some of these leading candidates will spend $100, $150 million yeah. through the first four contests. Some of them
1: will spend that out of their own pockets. Some may. Yeah. Um, but no, I I take this day by day. You know, the, the way you eat an elephant is one one piece at a time. And if you think of if you look at the end, I I, I think it's easy to be intimidated. And I'm gonna treat this the same way, the same mountain I climbed running against a 40-year incumbent, which is just build a coalition of supporters knock on the doors that people don't normally knock on uh, and, you know, put out the ideas you have to lift the fortunes of the people you want to help.
0: You talk about eating an elephant. How, uh, what is your level of confidence for Democrats that Donald Trump will be defeated in 2020? <laughs>
1: He, Donald Trump is going to be defeated in 2020. I in 2020, I think the best thing for the uh, country. Two th- 2020, yeah. 2020. yeah. Um, I, th- I think I got it right. <laughs> I I got it wrong probably. <laughs> yeah. uh, I John Roberts 2020.
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> um, good. That's right. Okay. Go, let um, continue. <laughs> he's going to be
1: defeated. The question <laughs> is whether he's the one who's on the ballot, uh, because you you have to wonder uh, if he is capable of, of surviving all of these investigations uh, and just the stress uh, that continues. Uh, to be on him. He's not a quitter. I will give him that. One thing I, if if you ask me, you know, what do you admire about the president? There's not very much, but he is not uh, a quitter. And so I I give him credit that he will probably, as long as he can hang on, will hang on. We should prepare for that. Uh, What do you hear from your Republican colleagues in the cloakroom? Just heads down. They don't make eye contact. Um, Again, that's been for me the most... Do they
0: want to run with Donald Trump in 2020?
1: Some of them do. Yeah. I mean, he's Donald Trump says what a lot of them have been saying for a long time, but just haven't had anyone you know listening to or, or tuning in. But then there's a lot of good guys who they were fearful that what happened in 2018 was going to happen. And, and, and now they're, they're seeing that they have a choice. They could either really distance themselves, work with Rep- Democrats on some of these issues, or just completely go down uh, with the ship. Uh, so I'm going to make efforts to rebuild the friendships. I had, you know, I've got a Republican friend who's invited me out uh, to his district uh, in Ohio, and I want to go do that trip uh, with him soon and do some joint town halls. But that has been, I think, the biggest uh, that that has been the victim for me uh, of this Trump presidency is just losing a lot of Republican friends and being able to work with them uh, because you know of the the prosecution of Trump that I've you know been doing. And I hate that. But I wouldn't do it any other way. This guy just needs to be held accountable. Eric Swalwell, great to be with you.
0: Good luck on this uh, journey. And uh, we'll see you again down the line. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, Visit politics.uchicago.edu.